September 17th, 2009. French football fan Brice Teton, 28, is beaten to death in Belgrade, Serbia, by a gang made up of supporters of an opposing team. What followed was a long and often controversial investigation into the circumstances of Brice's death and just who was responsible. Primary sources for this episode include The Presumption of Justice, a 2012 film by Boris Malagurski, BriceTaton.com, the BBC, Reuters, the EU Observer, Bleacher Report, Balkan Insight and Biography. Hi guys, welcome back to episode 150 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. Yep, 150 episodes. I'm sorry it took this long to get to the next episode, but as I've said before, it's just a crazy time if I could only explain it to you, but I can't be bothered. But I just saw my Spotify wrapped kind of analytics for this year and apparently I've created 4,088 minutes of new content which is more than 99% of creators so I think you guys have got a fair bit to get through (laughs) this year so I'm pretty proud of that. Um, Before I get into a few things I want to welcome since the uh, last episode I've got some new patrons Erin H, Danielle H and Deanna R. Now, Erin H, she was actually a friend in college of Desiree Gibbon, who I covered previously way back on this, and I I interviewed Desi's mum, Andy. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen. Desi was murdered, uh, still quote-unquote unsolved, in Jamaica a few years ago, and Erin has listened since she found the episode on Desi, and she's just a lovely girl, and she, I just felt really honoured um, because she sent me through some pictures of her uh, and Desi and their mates when they were in, in college or university. And um, as I said to Erin, it just took me back to that time, you know, the the buffont clipped back fringe or bangs as they call it in America, the waist belts, um, all of it. But it was lovely to see that side of Desi and I'll, I'm going to post some of those um, in the Patreon at some point this week as well. And it was just really nice. So thank you, Erin, and thank you to new patrons for joining. Uh, now, before we get into this week's episode, which will at the moment probably go into two episodes because as always, it just has swelled into something else entirely from what I thought it initially was when I first started looking into it about a month ago. Um, I want to read you a message I got from a new patron who's also relatively new patron who I'm not going to name for professional reasons, but confirmed. This person is a psychiatrist in the United States um, and that is confirmed and they really enjoyed the Hannah Up episodes as did most of you. I think I got more feedback on that than anyone, just different people's lived experiences and they sent me through, um, I'm not sure if it's a man or a woman because it's a bit of an ambiguous name, but they sent me through uh, some 
of their own thoughts on Hannah Up and I asked if I could share it anonymously and they said sure. Uh, so this person said, quote, many people who know me have heard my rants about the DSM in the past, uh, which is the diagnostic manual that we talked about on the Hannah Up episode. While there are clear biological conditions, things get murky beyond that. Ultimately, it's written by a bunch of people sitting at a conference table deciding how to bunch or pass out various constellations of non-biological phenomena. For instance, behavior behaviours and defence mechanisms such as dissociation, I could go on. One thing I do want to mention is that in bipolar disorder, the inability to encode memory is usually considered to be a biological issue, i.e. thought disorganisation, whereas true dissociation is more mysterious. In psychoanalytic terms, it is considered a primitive defence mechanism, but again, these distinctions are only as useful as they are only as useful as they can give insight in into how to help someone. And then they went on. One thing I've observed and thought about a lot is that some defense mechanisms, for example, dissociation and somatization, can start out as purely unconscious, but then start to include some subconscious or fully conscious elements as time goes on. For instance, maybe someone dissociates and others become extremely worried about them. Perhaps that person could find that care for them comforting and gratifying, and that desire for gratification may then feed into future dissociative episodes to some extent. So, I just found that super interesting, as did Marissa when I when I forwarded on. Um, forwarded it on to her. Sorry, I can't really speak today. Um, and then they wrote, even if that is the case, the fact that there was a known pattern or trigger for these, for these suggests additional layers. My best guess is that it did start out as subconscious or unconscious. How much that may have morphed over time, I'm really not sure. Because dissociative fugue is so rare, if we chose to label it as a distinct phenomena, I don't think there's enough information to say that it must look a certain way, for instance, pure wandering or lack of intention to actions. The fact that Hannah was checking her own email is really interesting, but who knows, perhaps she was vaguely going in and out of a dissociative state, or perhaps her dissociative state still included a very loose element of recognising herself yet not. It would be interesting to know what she was reading in that inbox or whether she sent any messages. I also think it was really interesting that the teacher she worked for noticed a change in personality and behaviour just before her ultimate disappearance. Like, what did she have to gain from doing that in what sounds like a non-performative way? Ultimately, we could create a hundred interesting narratives for what was going on, but without directly observing this, I just don't know. Um, and then she went on to kind of say it could also be biological, like I said. So just found that really interesting. And thank you so much for including that. Now, this week's case verges way away from the Hannah up into a realm of which I don't often dip my toe. And I did not time this to go with the World Cup at all. It's just the way it worked out that it was the next cab off the rank, which is super weird to me because the World Cup's going on at the moment. And things that we talk about in this episode are going on at the moment as a result of football or soccer. And I will interchange those because I'm Australian and I can't snap out of it, unfortunately. Hooliganism. Now, to introduce it, this is a Patreon location request for patron Sam. Sam is a patron from New Zealand who's an awesome listener and requested Serbia as one of his um, 
potential locations and that's the one I went with. And when I referred to my spreadsheet of and looked down to Serbia, I only had one name on my list that had been there for a couple of years and that was the name Brice Taton. Now, Brice is spelt like you the name Bryce would be, uh, except it's pronounced Brice in France. So I'll be saying it like that. And on the surface, honestly, when I read headlines and didn't dive too much into this when I first added Brice to my spreadsheet, I honestly thought this would be a very straightforward case of football hooliganism, of which I am not an expert. I've never participated. I come from a country where outside of the World Cup, soccer isn't the main um, sport, uh, like a lot of places, uh, AFL is, which is why we call AFL football and uh, soccer, soccer. But when I lived in England, I had that slapped out of me pretty quickly. And I ended up calling it football for the entirety of the time I was living over there. But really, it isn't just a straightforward case of seeming football hooliganism, which is a term I'll be using way too many times in this in this episode. Um, it's a lot more than that and it's a lot more laid than that. And it's kind of something that I thought I would keep getting into. But as I, I read about the reasons why and the perceived reasons why, particularly in this part of the world, it is so rife uh, being a football hooligan, it's really so tied in with the history of a place uh, and generally very notorious places for this kind of behaviour, particularly Serbia, which we're going to today, I've always felt that it's very tied in with our national identity and struggles of the past. And really, expert readings on that seem to to agree with that. Um, So I had a small taste of football hooliganism or not even to that extent, just gung-ho football fans while I was living in England and I could see why these things happen between soccer fans. Something about the sport really creates heightened emotions and some of the most rabid supporters of a sport in the world. And honestly, if you look up right now all over the world, yesterday in the news, um, you know, Belgian fans all beating the hell out of each other and they're usually very kind of calm people. Um, I'm sure that Australians, well, you know, in Melbourne the other day when they were watching Australia play, supporters were punching on with each other. Um, it really creates that in, in a sense that you just don't get it really in other sports. Um, now, Brees' story really is a lesson in how passion for a sports team shouldn't override humanity. Um, I just cannot understand it. My favourite sport of my whole life um, and one that I participated in up until I was a teenager in competition was tennis. I, I, I love tennis and during particularly the Australian Open and Wimbledon, I live and breathe it um, and obviously the Australian Open is held in Melbourne and I used to go every year before I, 40 degrees got a sitting in 40 degree heat all day got a little bit too much for me. But now that I'm a little bit better, I should be able to go again maybe next month. Um, and I just have never, I was thinking no matter what happened and how passionate I was about a sport, I've never considered killing someone over tennis. Now, coincidentally, really the only time I've ever seen tennis hooliganism is between uh, Croatians and Serbians at the Australian Open, which I witnessed one time. And I remember thinking, how can behaviour like that uh, go into a sport like tennis? Because it just doesn't have the same 
the same kinds of supporters that um, can be quite violent as um, football, for instance. Um, And I don't love tennis enough to ever murder someone over it. Um, I've never even really thought about it. But Serbia has a really big issue with football hooligans. In fact, it's one of the worst places in the world for it, which is something I realised going into this. Um, And this case may have happened in 2009, but there still are ongoing updates into it even today, which we'll get more into in part two. Brees Tatom was the first foreigner to die in Serbia of football-related violence, as they put it. Um, About a dozen Serbs have died or been seriously injured in similar incidents in the last decade to what happened to Brees. Um, And I will go into a few examples of those and some of the worst most violent supporters. Now, I'm not saying that the clubs uh, condone this behaviour or the governments of the places. Usually they come down pretty hard on it because they don't want to be associated with it. But the really ardent, fervent supporters that live and breathe for this stuff, if you've ever seen the movie Euro Euro Trip, you'll you'll probably picture like Vinnie Jones or whatever. Um, You know, I think he played, I think he was a Manchester United fan. Uh, What's unique about this case is that Usually, um, in almost every kind of murky case we cover, the country in question that a foreigner dies in or goes missing in is usually attempting to cover up the reality of what happened in order to protect their own ass, basically, and to protect future tourism. But as I found in a, in a documentary that I'll get more into in part two that I've watched twice on this case um, called The Presumption of Justice, which is the only documentary that's been made on this and there's very little out there about this case, barely anything in English language. I've done a lot of Google translating for this. It's mostly in Serbian um, and French. In the Brees Taton case, however, Serbia was desperately trying from day one of this. Some would say, particularly the director of this documentary I'll talk about, to throw dozens of its own people under the bus for the death of a foreigner. And I I found that very unusual because it's not something that's usually come out of my mouth on this podcast. Um, Also, what's unique about this is that no women feature in this story because there are By and large, 99.99% of football hooligans and also football fans that are this ardent are men. Uh, This is, I don't know if it comes down to testosterone or just the male mindset, that kind of hive mind where they all focus on the same thing and it's a sense of unity, which I've always thought is what brings these soccer fans together. But as you'll see, some of the most dangerous teams in the world also kill each other, like fans from the same club kill each other over things like where they're going to sit in a stadium, which I'll get into later. Things I'd, I just can't understand it, guys, but I would really like some men who listen to this podcast, who follow football. I'd love for you to reach out with kind of your own experiences, whether you're English and you've experienced this yourself or seen it, what your read on it is. I'd really like to hear from men in particular about that um, and, and what you notice amongst your friends who are into it or what you think brings you together and creates these kinds of situations. So let's start out by talking a little bit about our victim for this episode, Brice Taton. Brice Taton was a Frenchman who came from the city of Toulouse, which is 
not a massive city like Paris, but it's it's one of France's major cities. Um, and he was 28 years old at the time that he was killed while he was visiting Serbia for a football game. He was born on the 1st of May 1981 uh, and he would be, I guess, 41 now if he was alive. Um, when he died, he was 28 years old. And when you consider that this was over football um, and you see pictures of him, it just seems so... It's the definition of um, senseless, the word senseless. When people say it's a senseless killing, it's just this was over sport. Maybe I'm simplifying that too much and there's people out there who understand it um, more or the psyche of it, but that's just how I see it. Um, now, Brees was, he's a white guy. He's kind of got dark brown hair. He's got a really nice smile, cheeky kind of smile. I don't know how tall he was, maybe five foot nine or 10, uh, judging by his pictures. The problem is that there's very little out there about Brees. It's more about the perpetrators of this. Even the documentary that I'll talk about on part two, The Presumption of Justice, talks very little about Brees and predominantly about the people who were the crime of killing Brees, if that's what happened, um, were pegged on, essentially. Um, I expected way more information and then I got really excited when I saw that the family had an official website still up asking for witnesses to the crime, even all these years on, to come forward. It was all in French because Brees is French and so I translated it all and I got all excited when I saw a page dedicated to Brees and there was like three photos on it and a paragraph of information. It wasn't about Brees. And so I, there's just very little out there about what kind of person he was, uh, what he did, other than obviously we know he loved football, which I'll get into, um, things like that. Um, usually I don't refer to Wikipedia as a source, but unfortunately due to a lack of information about Brees out there, um, which is still limited on the Wikipedia, I had to translate the French Wikipedia page and to find out the bare minimum about him. And all it really said was that on in his life back in Toulouse, he worked in the suburbs of Toulouse in a store called Giffy, which looking it up, it's like a French home goods retail brand, kind of like the reject shop in Australia or B&M in England, maybe. Um, and he was close to his family. And I can tell that from the way that they've campaigned for justice for him, obviously, for the last uh, 13 years. But what I do know, which is central to this case, and sadly, a direct result of how Brees died, is that Brees loved football slash soccer, um, as do many of the French, um, as do many Europeans, and as do many people across the globe. Brees was an ardent supporter of his local city football club, Toulouse Football Club. Um, according to his Wikipedia, he was, I guess, a member of the group since 2001 and he was also treasurer of the group of supporters, which was, I think, I don't really want to say the name because I don't think it translated properly from Google Translate and Wikipedia wouldn't give me the option of translating on page to English, but he was treasurer of a group of fans that kind of joined together and he served as treasurer from 2004 to 2006 and he was also the founding member of the football club Forza Viola FC, which is essentially comprised of fans of the Toulouse football club that then 
create their own football club. Um, So his whole life kind of revolved around football and all of his friends were either through these organisations or football mad and they'd regularly travel both to home games but also games abroad. Um, Now, the only thing I really learned that was there on the BriceTaton.com family website was that Brice's favourite song, which really touched me and ties into a previous case we've covered, was the Liverpool Football Club song, You'll Never Walk Alone, which is I talked about and played on way back on the Stephen Cook episode, who was a uh, mad football fan who unfortunately died while he was visiting Crete uh, years ago. And they're still trying to get answers, his family, as to exactly what happened to him. Go back and listen to that. Um, If you haven't, listen to Stephen Cook's episode. But Stephen Cook's um, favourite song was this because it's the Liverpool FC theme and it's a really emotive song. It's by Jerry and the Pacemakers. It's my mum's favourite song of all time and it's very tied in to football fans kind of all over the globe even though it's predominantly, you know, the Liverpool FC anthem. But September 2009 was going to be a big month for Toulouse FC. They were due to play in Serbia against one of the major uh, Serbian Belgrade teams. So Belgrade is the capital of Serbia. And this team is called Partizan Belgrave um, and they're located, Belgrade, and they're located in the capital. Um, This match would kick off the group stage of the Europa League, which would run from 2009 to 2010. Now, in this part two-parter. I'm not going to get too much into the different leagues and things like that, but I'll give you a brief overview of football, not the rules of it, but how important it is in this area. So in mid-September 2009, with a group of around 10 fellow Toulouse fans, uh, Brees travelled to the Serbian capital of Belgrade for the match that was due to take place on September 17th, uh, between Toulouse FC and Partisan Belgrave. It was due to be played at 9pm that night. In part two, I'm really going to break down the crime scene and particularly helpful in that was the documentary, The Presumption of Justice. Now, this is available on YouTube. It has been put up by the director, which is awesome, and why I've been able to watch it twice. And I'll talk more about that in part two because... The director actually went there because he's, he's Serbian. He went and filmed these areas because this case really interests him. And he you kind of get a, a direct view of all of these places that is pretty much uh, priceless in terms of understanding this case. Um, but I'm going to give you the brief overview of the crime that then happened that resulted in Brees' death. And then we're going to talk about uh, Serbia and how the history of Serbia and places with a lot of uh, tumultuous history can lead into this kind of hooliganism at its core. So on September 17th, 2009, Brice and his fellow Toulouse fans were in an Irish pub in Belgrade, in downtown Belgrade, pretty much the capital of um, kind of the, the heart of the city. Uh, the bar is literally called Irish Pub and the documentary interviews people who were there, uh, bartenders who were working there, the manager of the place, and I'll talk about that more in part two when we get more into the nitty-gritty of this case. But if you watch The Presumption of Justice, you see it all firsthand. Essentially, this little 
laneway that is quite one of those broad European laneways with cobblestones. It's a very kind of relaxed, lovely area, very family friendly. It's kind of like a little mauled off laneway with tables and chairs in the lane, very European. Uh, it's not a rowdy area. People come here because there's different bars that have their tables and chairs outside and they just relax. And because this was September uh, and it's still nice weather coming out of summer, that's what people were doing and there were lots of people there. The game was due to start that night and this was late afternoon around 530 we'll talk more about how the timing is very important on part two and it's still nice weather now the group that Brees was with had been here a few times they'd flown in a few days previously just to spend some time in Belgrade um and they were awaiting the match to happen in a few hours that night and so they'd headed down to Irish pub and were just chilling out inside and outside just having a couple of pints and chilling out now, according to the Presumption of Justice documentary, Brees and his fellow Toulouse supporters weren't particularly demonstrative of their allegiance to Toulouse Football Club in the sense that they weren't um, wearing jerseys. There are pictures of Brees, which I'll talk about in a little bit, uh, which is something that's unique to this case. We don't usually get actual pictures of the person after they've been um, essentially murdered, which is available out there openly on the internet uh, they weren't wearing jerseys and they didn't have their faces painted which always makes me think of Seinfeld with the devils you know what's his name it's Elaine's dumb boyfriend but a big group of Frenchmen in a foreign pub and a match between France and Serbia that night I guess puts a target on their head and it got me thinking that maybe this is the hot spot that um, brings football fans together when they head to the city to downgrade Belgrade and they hang out at this Irish pub because Irish pubs are everywhere all over the world and the last time I was in Thailand I spent about three nights in an Irish pub on Koh Samui. Now Brees and his friends were just being quiet not drawing attention to themselves anything like that. Toulouse is not known for being a rowdy team, nor are a lot of regional French teams. They don't come up on many lists that I've read of the most dangerous or rowdy teams in the world. Um, and they weren't causing any trouble by all, by all witness statements or being loud. They were just hanging out and it was probably about three and a half hours until kickoff that night for the game between Partisan Belgrade and Toulouse. So around 5.30pm, as Brees and his friends mingled inside and outside the bar, around 20 local Serbian men, all armed with iron bars, bicycle chains, baseball bats and smoke torches or flares, suddenly entered this laneway. You can actually watch on the Presumption of Justice documentary as they storm up the level to this laneway up this flight of stairs, which is incredibly important to the identification of these people and something we'll talk about on part two. They essentially just swarmed this uh, mauled laneway where people were just having a late afternoon, nice hangout session um, and essentially opened up a reign of violence on a lot of people, particularly targeting uh, the Toulouse group that were there. It seemed that they headed straight for the Irish pub, which makes me think that they knew that they had been frequenting them. This gang of men viciously attacked the Toulouse fans, including Brees and his team. Many of the French fans were able to run for safety, but three of Brees's group, including Brees, weren't so lucky. 
the chronological events of that evening are what is in question and what the documentary The Presumption of Justice revolves around and what we will get into. But in short, while locals did try to intervene for help, it was just this blitz attack and Brees and his fellow friend Philippe were set upon particularly badly. Brees attempted to run for safety, but depending on whose version of events you believe, he then fell essentially like um, 10 feet or more from a landing, resulting in fatal injuries. Um, Now, we'll get into this more in part two. This is a confusing aspect that I kind of want to explain more in depth on part two because essentially it looks like flower pots from one side and if you go to jump over it, you'd think that you were on a level, the same level, but it essentially hides like what is a um, massive drop-off to a lower level uh, in this part of downtown Belgrade. What makes this case so unique is that we have actual photos of Brees after his fall where he was being assisted by paramedics into an ambulance. Now, in it, Brees is conscious. He's extremely bloodied. He's clearly landed on his head or been bashed badly across his face because he's the left side of his face is completely swollen up. His eye is already swollen shut and this is minutes afterwards because they called for help pretty much immediately when people saw him fall. Uh, no one really saw whether he was pushed or he jumped. Uh, but Brees would be taken to hospital and despite the fact that when you look at these pictures and you see a conscious man, he can't stand up and they're trying to get him up. As we all know, you can be alive initially afterwards. Princess Di was talking to paramedics after her her accident. But then internally what's happening can, you know, be ter- can be horrific. And that's what happened with Brees. Brees would ultimately be taken to hospital where he would succumb to massive internal injuries as a result of the fall and the beating that he endured. Um, in the photos, and I'm looking at them right now, Brees has a navy t-shirt with a logo on it. I do not know if it says uh, Toulouse on it, but I don't think it does. Um, it's just a kind of logo across the front. There's nothing really about Brees that says I'm a football fan for all. Just from looking at the outset, he could just be a Serbian guy at a local pub. He's being assisted by two um, ambulance officers who are in like their red uniform shirts and there's a police officer there and he can't kind of stand on his own. They've kind of got him um, under his arms trying to help him and there's blood on his hands and stuff like that, which is probably being transferred, but he was probably defending himself as well to an extent before he decided to flee Um, and particularly the left side of his face is bad. And I'm not going to put them on the episode page um but I will put them in the Patreon but if you want to look them up they're just in Google images like because they're in most news articles um they're not particularly confronting or anything like that for a guy that fell the length he did and the fact he's still alive it's shocking um but I'll put them in the Patreon now from the outset this is not a one-off or entirely unexpected or rare crime and Boris, who directed the presumption of justice and and made it, and it's quite a good for a low budget, just um kind of independent documentary. It's it's really good and really thorough, and I highly recommend watching it. Um, he kind of saw the headlines of this happening and and kind of didn't think that there would be much to it. Um, that they would 
maybe get the ones responsible and that would be the end of it. And then it kind of snowballed into something else entirely. But events like this are happening right now across the world with the World Cup in full swing, maybe more than any other time. Um, Every four years all over the world, this is happening and it's right now just by pure coincidence. But football hooliganism is something that as is exemplified in a comedic way by movies like Eurotrip, it's a distinct thing mostly reserved to soccer. The Presumption of Justice doco looks a little bit at the history of football hooliganism, particularly in Serbia um, and in the former Yugoslavia. Uh, They seem to have a habit of being quite violent and that's not a racist thing to say, it's just a fact. They're regularly listed as some of the most dangerous teams And when you look up any list, any independent list of the 10 most dangerous teams, partisan Belgrade, which seems to have committed this crime against uh, the fans of Toulouse in Belgrade, are always generally in the top 10. Um, The UK also has an issue, obviously, with football hooliganism. But according to Bleacher Report, certain clubs are renowned for being particularly volatile or even deadly. And some you just wouldn't expect. You just wouldn't think. I've just never thought... Poland is a particularly violent country where as a non-football supporter or follower, I wouldn't think that people from Krakow would be particularly volatile, but I was shocked by what I found. So I'm going to go through a few, but this is not a full list. Uh, There's just so many that span particularly different countries in South America and Europe. Um, And I also just want to say that this is generally separate from the government or the teams playing or the clubs themselves and is not generally supported by them. But as we get into later on with Serbia, Serbia has a history of the government using football hooliganisms to sway public opinion, which is something I never thought I'd say. Poland is one of them. Now, this is where I'm going to start getting nervous because in this episode, I have to say a lot of um, kind of Balkans names from different places, a lot of Serbian names, and I'm not good with the Iks and the Itches and the Djokovic's, uh, which is one of the few ones I can say, or the uh, Milosevic's. Uh, so please bear with me. Uh, Vishla Krakow is notorious for hooliganism. This is a Krakow team. In 1999, fans of Vishla stabbed an Italian footballer in the head. In 2006, a battle between Krakow and a rival uh, Krakow club saw eight people killed. Now, one of my favourite cities, Prague, has an issue with this, which I didn't even know. One of the Prague teams is called Ultra Sparta Praha, and they have one of the most well-organised football hooligan movements in Europe. They communicate through uh, social media platforms and encrypted apps and things like that to orchestrate different attacks they're going to do. Um, they've attacked different members of the football clubs, former members of clubs, um, and there's been some deadly attacks as well. Now, there's an Argentine club called River Plata, I think, and they actually fight amongst each other. In 2007, there was a gun and knife fight in Argentina uh, between the same supporters of the same club and this kicked off because none of them could decide where they wanted to stand in the stadium during the match. (sighs) They need a few more women I think in that to kind of figure this shit out. 
There's a Peruvian club uh, called Uni- Universitario de Deportes who have one of the most violent fan bases in Peru, which is notorious for being violent regarding soccer. And it's one of the worst in all of South America, even including Brazil teams. Um, this Peruvian club have set fire to cars and buses of rival fans, sometimes with them inside it. Um, and very much in line with what happened with Brees, the worst incident involving this Peruvian club was when they picked up a fan from an opposing team and threw him from the stadium stands, where unsurprisingly he later died. There is a Turkish club called Galatasaray, uh, which is pretty open about how violent they're going to be towards opponents and fans of opposing teams. Uh, They chant a slogan as opposing teams and opposing fans walk into their stadium in Istanbul, which translates to welcome to hell. These are just a few examples of many that I read about that span many countries and continents, actually not Australia, weirdly, but we're not really into it. Although in Melbourne the other day, fans were punching on with each other. So yeah, the UK is notorious for football hooligans and has one of the worst records for both banning and arresting violent members, usually of the same teams over and over. Now, my understanding was that West Ham had one of the most violent fan bases and looking up the statistics, this is actually statistically correct. The club with the highest numbers of supporter arrests over the last year has been West Ham United with 95 arrests and this is followed by Manchester City with 76 arrests and Manchester United with 72. But when I was writing that, as much as I'm sure he's a nice guy and people seem to like him, kind of this has to come down from the players, how they treat their fans as well. And I'm not, I don't know a whole lot about soccer, but I just know what I see. And I saw um, Cristiano Ronaldo recently like smack a phone out of a fan's hand. And considering how many millions these players make, some of them are making like, I'm talking a million a day. Um, the, if you want to, just in my opinion, if you want to lead by example. It has to start with with the team. And I'm pretty sure Ronaldo now plays for United, except two weeks ago, I think he shot himself in the foot and they want him gone now. But as expected, partisan Belgrade always makes an appearance on these lists of the most violent fans. Supporters of the club are notoriously brutal and patriotic. The year before Brees was killed, a man was shot dead in what appeared to be an organised fight um, orchestrated between hooligans from Partisan Belgrade and Novosad, which is a club that comes from Novosad, which is the second biggest city in Serbia behind Belgrade. And there's been many more murders on top of that. But Brisa seems to be the one that has attracted the most international media coverage because Brisa was the first foreigner killed in Serbia as a result of football-related violence. And I really wanted to know why. I've always kind of thought about sport in relation to... I've generally thought that um, <clears throat> these parts of the world do have the most violent sports fans. And when I saw it firsthand at the tennis one year, I kind of thought... It was between Serbia and Croatian fans and I kind of thought, um, how can this bleed over into a sport that's not violent like tennis? 
But I always had my suspicions that most of these countries, particularly former Eastern Bloc countries or countries that have been through so much, so many tumultuous centuries, I think they naturally kind of have a predisposition to be like this. I was actually talking to my mum earlier and she kind of said, I think they're just like that. Um, because I was talking to a Croatian friend of mine about this, which I'll talk about on part two and why why they think that Croatians and Serbians in particular are some of the most dangerous. And this person is a massive football fan, travels the world for football events, not going to Qatar this year, but in general, yeah. Um, but I think the idea of them being quite brutal is also stemmed in a lot of people's almost very recent memories of um, Serbia's actions during the Bosnian War and the breakup of Yugoslavia. It's one of the earliest news stories I remember happening when I was, you know, a young girl, all over the news, um, the war in Kosovo and things like that. And what sticks in a lot of people's heads is the brutality by the Serbs, as they're known, um, particularly towards minorities, uh, which really can't be ignored. And I'll talk about that in a bit. As Bleacher Report noted, quote, in a phenomenon that coincided with the fall of communism and the resulting surge in far-right neo-Nazi politics, Eastern Europe and the Balkans has become a hotbed of violent hooligan activity. Serbia's partisan Belgrade are no exception. So that is a good time for me to talk a little bit about a place we have not been to on this podcast before, Serbia. The only time we've ever really gone to the Balkans on this podcast is when we went to Croatia for the Brit Lapthorne case, who was a Melbourne girl who uh, died in very strange circumstances that are yet really to be determined over a decade on in Dubrovnik in Croatia. Um, my friend Laura was also a guest on an episode I did that where we talked about different syndromes named after different place names. Um, and she in that, while we were talking about Sarajevo syndrome, which is essentially um, discusses aspects of PTSD, she talked about how she had been to Sarajevo um, as a tourist. But really, other than that, we really haven't discussed this area and we haven't been to Serbia before. But Serbia, while it is neighbours with Croatia, which is a very popular tourist destination, particularly places like Dubrovnik and Split, um, it continues to be somewhat uh, not really talked about in the realm of tourism, but I've noticed that it does have it has been used more. I've noticed in particular that more foreign companies are now uh, operating out of there, particularly to save money. And they're making a lot of Hollywood movies in Serbia now where they're having Serbia double as other places. Um, so I found that interesting because it's got a very beautiful uh, kind of landscape with lots, lots of national parks and, and mountains and things like that. Um, but each year more and more tourists venture here. Serbia is a country in central southwestern Europe. Um, Hungary is north of Serbia, which is pretty much the closest I've been to this part of the world. Romania is to the northeast. South of Serbia is northern Macedonia. Croatia and Bosnia and Herzegovina are to the west. And Montenegro is to the southwest, which has always been um, on my list of places I want to go to, Montenegro. And it also has a border or claims a border with Albania as a result of the disputed territory of Kosovo, which you may be familiar with. And one day we'll do we'll do an episode on the Kosovo War because it's just not an it's not an area of history that I'm I'm 
I'm familiar with. You can't be across everything and it's always confused me. Um, Serbia has a population of 6.7 million people and it's made up of around 83% Serbs, as they're known, and 90% of the population identifies as Christian, uh, which comes into play particularly uh, with the Bosnian War. Serbia is a landlocked country and there's a meme that I really like where um, it says Serbians, quote, I want to swim, Croatia, no, because when you see a picture, Croatia takes up the entire um, coastline of this part of southwestern Europe and then completely blocks off Serbia from the coast kind of you have to look it up to understand it um Belgrade where today's case takes place is the capital of Serbia and the largest city it's home to 1.3 million of the country's 6.7 million residents the region that is now known as Serbia dates way back to the Paleolithic age but by the 1300s the Serbian empire had formed 300 years later, the Ottomans annexed this region and what followed was a long-term kind of fight of sorts between the Ottoman Empire and the Habsburg Empire, uh, which if you've ever been to um, Austria, there's a lot of kind of nods to the Habsburgs. Modern-day Serbia was ultimately forged through the Serbian Revolution of 1804 to 1835 when rebels overthrew the Ottoman annexation and they formed their own constitutional monarchy. This was a violent, armed and bloody war and it ultimately culminated in the recognition of the right to rule by Serbian princes. Um, So essentially a monarchy was put in place and the country had its first constitution outlined in 1835. As a result of this, serfdom and feudalism were also abolished. Then came World War I and Serbia experienced a massive loss of life and this led Serbia, essentially, this is the Cliff Notes version of history because if I was to go into every detail of this, I'd start a new podcast. Um, it f- led Serbia to co-found the region of Yugoslavia uh, with other neighbouring nations, Croatia, Slovenia and today's Um, country of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Now, many people still call it Yugoslavia. People who kind of grew up with it being called Yugoslavia, i.e. my parents. But a lot of people from this area, I have an old man up my street who's in his 90s and he still walks every day, really strong accent. Um, And he says, I'm Yugoslavian. And I I said to him once, yeah, but which country? And he kind of took offence to that, um, which kind of says, you know, a lot about what his political leanings were, I guess. But he said, oh, if you had to say which one it was, which I don't want to, it's Croatia. Um, As almost always happens um, in a power vacuum that followed World War I, a communist president took power in post-World War II uh, when the country was decimated physically, emotionally and financially. This gave way to a man called Tito, which is not actually his birth name, but he's known as Tito. He's known as Marshal Tito. You may have heard of him. And he ruled Yugoslavia with an iron fist. Now, as always happens, there's always supporters. You get that with Mussolini. Um, and people are either ardently against them or on the side of them. Um, my mum had a patient and I used to go visit her at work and talk to her different patients and stuff. And he was from, he was a German who lived and grew up in, in Yugoslavia, um, what is now 
Serbia. And he had grown up in internment camps as a result of Tito. Now, as a teenager, I didn't understand when I, because I was talking to him and I didn't understand or know who Tito was. And I said to him, was this because of Stalin? Like I was confused about how this fit into everything. And he goes, no, it was Tito. Anyway, he ended up in internment camps and then they were forced on a death march under Tito, which ultimately led to his mother dropping dead on the side of the road. And he was telling me how he and his sisters tried to stop. They wanted to give her a burial and they were essentially bashed and told to keep walking. And then ultimately they escaped from this death march and they ended up living in someone's barn where people took pity on them, local farm people, um, and fed them. And ultimately his, um, him and one sister survived and he emigrated to Australia where he met the love of his life and um, they lived out their days and then she unfortunately died and he ended up in a care home and that's how he became my mum's patient. Now, in 1952, Stalin, who had an ongoing kind of conflict with Tito, plotted to kill Tito, but Stalin died before the plan went ahead. Hugo Tua kind of wrapped this up very nicely, so I'm going to read to you from that. About Tito, quote, he was elected prime minister right after World War II and the first thing he did was transform Yugoslavia from a monarchy to a republic. The communists made sure they got paycheck, sorry, for payback for the years of oppression and while doing that, arguably went overboard. Some accused Tito of being a dictator while others thought of his leadership as a benevolent dictatorship, absolute power but for the benefit of the population. Felicity here an oxymoron, there's never been a more obvious one than benevolent dictatorship, okay? The two words don't go together. However, it may be described the people of Yugoslavia truly loved him and loved their country immensely. The vast majority enjoyed the fact that they lived under a more liberal type of communism, again, two words that don't go together, often called Titoism. Tito was re-elected a number of times before he eventually got tired. Sorry, that was called Titoism, unquote. Now, this is my words, how I've written it. Tito was, quote, unquote, re-elected in the sense that dictators are, um, whether or not election fraud happens, which who knows. Um, But a lot of people think that these were just sham elections. But eventually he got tired of kind of putting on these sham elections and staging them. So in 1963, he made his own new constitution, which we've seen before in all over the world, uh, Africa, you know, Asia. They eventually get jack of this kind of uh, pretending that things are okay and they're just like, we're just going to, you know, we're just going to make it clear what we're doing. This happens a lot in South America. Um, And in his new constitution, which was in 1963, he proclaimed himself, quote unquote, president for life, uh, which is a very Mugabe type move. And he ruled until he died in 1980. Now, when the 90s rolled around, uh, so did an event that you may well remember. And one of the earliest big world events or wars, I remember being televised across TV every night, which was the Yugoslav Wars. These were essentially separate conflicts across the area of Yugoslavia and various different fights for independence that spanned from 1991 to 2001. And it eventually saw the breakup of Yugoslavia into the modern day nations that we know them as today. Ultimately, they would break up into six independent countries matching um, six different countries uh, which previously were 
Yugoslavia, so they became Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Montenegro, Serbia, um, and North Macedonia, which was previously named Macedonia. So that's how we get to modern day Serbia. Um, when I was talking to my mum, I said, she, I said, oh, I'm just reading about the history of Serbia for work, quote unquote, because I've tried to explain what a podcast is for three years almost, and I've given up. So I just say these things are for work now. And so I, no wonder she doesn't understand what I do for a living. I think she thinks I'm a journalist, even though I'm a writer. But um, I said to her, I'm right. I'm reading about the history of Serbia, um, and she immediately wrote back one word, uh, which I actually hadn't come across because I don't remember it happening because I was too young. Um, and she wrote back, um, Srebrenica, um, but she she misspelled it and she wrote, "I can't spell it." And I said, "What was that?" And she said, "I think the Serbs did that under Milosevic." Um, and she said, I remember it on TV at the time. Uh, so I looked it up and essentially, and I'm sorry if I'm saying it wrong, um, the Srebrenica massacre, also known as the Srebrenica genocide, was the July 1995 genocidal killing of more than 8,000 Bosniak Muslim men and boys in and around the town of Srebrenica during the Bosnian War. These killings were perpetrated by the units of the Bosnian Serb Army of Republika uh, Srebrenica under the command of Ratko Mladic. Um, and so I went off and was reading about that because I knew that that was kind of religion fueled, And then I, I decided that I'm just not going to talk about that because it just confuses this episode in particular. But I do have an episode planned on Bosnia that I want to do next year, which will help me and help maybe a lot of you because it's, it's just a war that I don't fully understand. Um, so this, in short, is a country built on constant battles, war, instability and struggle. And as a result of that, it starts to make sense to you why the unity of sport, you can start to understand why when it's so broken up by conflict. This is just my own words. When it's so wrought by conflict, sport is meant to be the one unifying thing. It's not meant to be political. It's meant to be everyone has an even playing field. That's what sport used to be anyway, but it it's like become very political and stuff. But that's what the Olympics like aimed to do. You know what I mean? And I guess in a, in a country that there's not a lot of things to unify over and there's constant wars to unify over a team gives people a sense of meaning and identity. And we talked about meaning a lot on a recent episode, I think Yossi Ginsberg, and that's just all things that occurred to me. But the history of Serbia didn't just end with peace and rainbows when Serbia became independent again um, after all of this. Things didn't just right themselves. The economy collapsed due to sanctions put on Yugoslavia uh, from the United Nations um, for, during the war in Bosnia um, and the Yugoslav Wars. And in two years, between 1991 and 1993, the GDP of Serbia went from $24 billion in 1991 to $10 billion in 1993. People were really struggling and I guess football remained a constant for them. That's kind of what occurred to me, which is why I really try to understand where these things come from and not just brush them off and think they're violent. I really want to understand 
why, why? And I've always asked questions, why is, does this happen? Why does this violence happen in this sport? And, and that's kind of what I've come to. Serbia in the 2000s uh, was sued on basically what I talked about earlier, uh, the neighbouring genocides um, in neighbouring Bosnia and Herzegovina um, and in Croatia. And most of the cases against Serbia were dismissed by the International Kind of Criminal Court in The Hague. The one-party system was dismantled, again, words that shouldn't go together, one-party system. Um, But the Socialist Party wouldn't just go away easily after they'd held on to power with a death grip for decades and decades. And protests followed as a result of that. After the Yugoslav Wars, Serbia became home to one of the highest number of refugees and displaced persons in the world and the highest number in Europe. In 2003, the Prime Minister was assassinated um, and tensions kicked off in Kosovo again. Um, as this is, which in a future episode when I do Bosnia and that and Kosovo, we'll talk about uh, kind of the Muslim versus Serbian Orthodox kind of wars and what underlies all of that. Um, but during this, a number of Serbian Orthodox churches and monasteries were set fire to, destroyed or damaged. Now, today, Serbia is still not part of the EU. It It is one of the, I think it's the only country in Europe, uh, one source said, outside Belarus that is not part of the EU um, other than uh, Ukraine. Now, when someone wrote that, I was like, well, actually, there's other countries that aren't, so I wasn't entirely sure because I know that Ukraine has applied for it, but the thing that people don't understand is you don't just apply and it's like getting a new licence and it comes in the mail. The process of joining the EU takes decades. Serbia applied like 20 years ago to join the EU and it's still ongoing today. Um, Even though Brexit happened over the course of just a couple of years, applying to join the EU is not that simple. But Serbia today, despite its history, is surprisingly a largely safe country for tourists and visitors. In fact, it is regularly ranked as one of the 30 safest countries in the world, which is amazing considering its history. And when I talk about violence there, I'm talking about it in relation to uh, football hooliganism, but it's generally between football fans and they don't generally branch out to killing the public and things like that. Um, Serbia is full of kind and friendly people and most people I know who have been or online reviews, TripAdvisor and things like that just say they're some of the kindest people in the world, which is something I've always found when I've travelled that some of the most friendly people, i.e. Cambodians, are the ones that have endured the most and some of the kind of meanest people in the world are the ones that have come from countries where everything's been given to them on a silver platter compared to other countries. Um, It also remains cheap to visit, extremely cheap, even in comparison to nearby Croatia, which is way more expensive than it used to be as a result of tourism just soaring across particularly Dubrovnik and the Croatian islands and people going island hopping and things like that. And many international businesses and Hollywood have taken full advantage of this in Serbia by saving money and moving their operations there. 
According to the official Serbia tourism website, which is serbia.travel, quote, Serbia's enchanting landscapes are a true feast for the eyes and soul. Whichever region of Serbia you choose to visit, you are guaranteed to leave with lasting impressions of its magical scenery and unrivaled experiences, unquote. Um, Serbia's economic growth is predicted to continue to boom and it's going to be kind of a major economic driver of the Balkans, maybe even surpassing Croatia at some point. In 2009, uh, tourism generated around $1.6 billion revenue in Serbia and around three, um, 3.7 million tourists visited Serbia, half of which were considered uh, foreigners, sorry, Belgrade. Chinese tourists make up the most foreign visitors to Serbia, followed by tourists from na- nearby Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, Bulgaria, Turkey and Germany. Ecotourism is also becoming very popular in Serbia, as is food tourism. People come here for their unique kind of cuisine uh, and they've got a really unrivaled in this part of the world outdoor lifestyle that they can offer. There's thermal baths, which I've been to in in nearby Hungary uh, and is kind of an important kind of both social and economic driver in this part of the world. There's top skiing and ski resorts, exceptional hiking through their many national parks, which are really beautiful. And honestly, when you look up pictures, you it's like when I did Georgia recently with the Shanae Edwards case, you just don't think of these landscapes in response to these places. You think of these places as being war-torn. Um, and I think that's I've been guilty of stereotyping so many places and honestly through this podcast it's really opened my eyes and it's one thing I hope that you guys can take away that it's done that too. It also has some of the best kayaking um, and whitewater rafting in Europe. The official language of Serbia is Serbian but there's obviously um, minor languages that immigrants speak as well as local dialects and as is the same in many countries, particularly ones that were war-torn, where a lot of people died during conflicts, many young people in Serbia, they're the ones who generally speak the best English. So people in their children, teens and 20s, they are kind of raised to speak English, whereas the older ones generally are less likely to. Um, the older ones often speak Serbian. A lot of them speak German, which was the case with my mum's um, patient, Stefan, who was German because they had quite a large German population living there, um, Russian or French as well. Belgrade and Nova Sad, which is the second largest city in Serbia besides Belgrade, are the most visited cities for visit, uh, for tourists. Again, it doesn't have a coastline, so people aren't going here for a beach break. If you want to go here, it's for a city break or heading to, you know, the mountains or a national park. Belgrade in particular has a buzzing nightlife. It's got these really unique bohemian neighbourhoods. It's got great theatre. It's regularly, you know, big bands travel to Serbia now to do concerts. Uh, They've got gorgeous historic architecture. A lot of it, um, uh, I'm trying to think of Neo. I can't think of what they... Art Nouveau, I think, um, and unique cuisine that is hugely popular. Belgrade itself has over 1,800 restaurants, coffee shops, bars and nightclubs, which is a huge amount for a country that only has 
one for a city that only has 1.3 million people, um, which is why when you watch this documentary, The Presumption of Justice, it's it's got this, it's very reminiscent of like little Italian laneways where it's like restaurant, 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 cafe, 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 bar, bar, bar. So famous um, people from Serbia or Belgrade include Nikola Tesla, who at some point I will be doing an episode on because I find him fascinating and love reading about him and think he was amazing. And obviously Novak Djokovic, who's also my favourite tennis player and has been for about a decade, and I get a lot of shit for that, but whatever. In Belgrade, you can visit the Tesla Museum, uh, which is the Museum of Nikola Tesla, which I'm sure doesn't have the things that he invented that the government confiscated immediately after his death and no one ever saw again. Uh, The Belgrade Fortress, temples, and there's always festivals and events and, yes, football. Football is the most popular sport in Serbia and it has been played in Serbia since 1896. So even at the height of war and civil war and, um, you know, financial crashes and tumult, there has always been football as a uniting factor. Football, interestingly, was first introduced to Serbia in 1896 when a Jewish university student called Hugo Bulli had been studying in Germany and returned home to Serbia and he brought with him a football because in Germany they were starting to play it but they were not playing it in Serbia and he bought a football and started teaching his mates in Belgrade how to play football and before long it took off and now... It's just an out-of-control movement in Serbia. The men's league in Serbia is the most popular, but there's also women's and youth leagues as well. Now, in Serbia, consider this. For 6 million people, there are 2,770 registered football clubs and there's 120,000 registered football players. (laughs) Now, the country has its own league cup, which is called the Serbian Cup. And the most successful and popular teams in Serbia for football are Red Star, which regularly comes up when you research football and Serbia and violence, and Partisan Belgrade, which is, if you believe the coverage of this and what happened, happened, which is most likely the case. Um, These are the people who fans of this club inflicted violence upon the Toulouse fans that night, which resulted in Brice being murdered. Um, Now, both of those teams are from Belgrade and they regularly fight amongst each other. Just three days before putting the script together, um, a news article from when I googled Serbia and football to see what's happening in the world or what they're doing over in Qatar, I got an article from The Sun UK titled Ultraviolence Inside Qatar World Cup's Most Notorious Football Fans, The Serbian Ultras, Who Beat Rivals to Death with Iron Bars, which sounded similar to what happened with Brees, unfortunately. Now, I'm not going to get into Qatar or what's going on over there or ethical issues with Qatar because it's not about this episode and it's not to do with Qatar at all. We're on the other side of the world. But what I will say is it is extremely stupid to go to a country like Qatar and to participate in violence um, and take weapons with you. You'll end up in prison or on death row um, and don't expect to be treated differently because you're 
from Serbia or from America or from Australia. Just toe the line. Otherwise, you'll never get out of prison. Um, and I'm seeing people, luckily, I'm not really seeing people in the news acting up in Qatar, but who knows? Because, you know, they banned alcohol and that's the centre of many people's lives. And who knows if that kind of detoxing effect will lead some people just to go over the edge because generally the comments I saw was that people couldn't believe that a dry country would dare ban alcohol. Um, and honestly, maybe the alcohol has like a pacifying effect, but maybe it has the opposite effect as well. Who knows? I'm really not getting into it. Australia's playing Denmark in a few hours and I may watch it. I may not. I haven't watched any games so far because of the time difference. I'm not getting up at four in the morning to watch Australia play. Um, I don't care enough, but people are and I don't blame them. Now, in this Sun article, uh, there's photos of Serbian fans um, in wearing balaclavas. I don't know what you guys call them in the rest of the world. I've often had this question. They're like ski masks, like the full with your eyes are just exposed. We call them balaclavas here. Um, and people, basically Serbian fans spitting on other people. So good luck in Qatar because they're not just going to give you a slap on the wrist like they generally do across the rest of the world. And then just today, before I was recording this, I decided to give it one last whirl on Google to see what was up. And I got this article from Fox Sports, quote, authorities say at least 50 people were injured and 40 arrested after fierce clashes between Red Star and partisan soccer fans in Serbia. The riots erupted before the match between the two biggest Belgrade rival clubs at the Red Star Stadium in the capital last Saturday. The start of the match had to be postponed for 40 minutes when hooligans hurled stones at each other and battled with sticks. The play was also stopped for seven minutes because of flares hurled onto the pitch. And that was four days ago. So, yeah. The Serbian government is not openly proud of this and they, as we as you will see when we get into part two with Brees' investigation, um. They may be getting quite sick of it, at least the modern government, if you believe them, which will come into play next episode. But I wanted to wrap up this part one with a article that I want to read the entirety from, from Balkan Insight. Um, so I'm going to read you this article, but then I'm going to read you another one after that. And it really paints a really good picture of why hooliganism is so tied into the wars in the Balkans in the 90s. And this is from an actual Balkans publication. So I'm going to read this to you first. This was from 2019. Quote, Serbia has a history of tolerating hooliganism in the Balkan Wars of the 1990s. They swelled the ranks of paramilitaries, most famously the Tigers Militia, commanded by the late Zelcho Raznatovic Arkan, leader of the hardcore group of Red Star Belgrade supporters. In times of peace, they have knocked heads together to shape public opinion. Having fought his wars, fan groups helped bring down Serbian strongman Slobodan Milosevic. They are known for leading riotous uh, protests against the arrest of war criminals, independence for Kosovo and LGBT rights. With the rise over the past six years of the ruling Serbian Progressive Party, analysts say the relationship between the state and football supporter groups has evolved into something like a working arrangement. In exchange for obedience on the streets, hooligans can pursue their business activities relatively unmolested. 
unquote. And that is the right that is the right terminology for unmolested, which is sad, but it's the right use of it. So yeah, football hooliganism has been harnessed for political gain. And so I went off and I wanted to read about how Slobodan Milosevic, who I do remember as a leader, and I remember his death, uh, how he used it to his advantage. And it really made me think a lot. And I, I read, I found an article in the EU Observer from 2010. Um, and this piece was published the year after Brees died. Now, while it doesn't go into Brees's death, I feel that it's important to read the entirety of it to understand what many considered, um, to understand the underlying reasons why the government suddenly took this very heavy-handed approach to finding Brees's killers. Um, and the title of this article from the EU Observer is How Milosevic Fostered 20 Years of Serbian Football Violence, unquote. Now, for context, if you don't know who Slobodan Milosevic was, um, he was a Yugoslav, and well, Serbian, but Yugoslav politician. He was the president of Serbia um, from... 1989 to 1997 and he was the president of the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia from 1997 to 2000. He ultimately was arrested for war crimes on top of another corruption and embezzlement and all kinds of different things and he died in custody in The Hague in the Netherlands in 2006 where he was being held on charges of war crimes associated with the Bosnian War and what my mum was talking about um, earlier, uh, the different you know, massacres of 8,000 young men. Um, so, so that's Slobodan Milosevic. Now, I'm going to read you this article and then we'll wrap up. Quote, Serbian football violence forced the dramatic breakup of a Euro 2012 qualifier between Serbia and Italy in Genoa on Tuesday night. This form of sports-related hooliganism began more than 20 years ago in Serbia and its sinister undercurrents still run deep. Slobodan Milosevic was president of Serbia, then president of Serbia, realised that fans of Belgrade's Red Star Football Club were too nationalistic for comfort, too anti-communist and too close to opposition politicians. Together with the chief of the security service, he recruited Zelko Reznatovic Arkan, a criminal and freelance assassin, to solve the problem. Sport has become a breeding ground for nationalistic violence in Serbia. Within weeks, Arkan had unified the various groupings of Red Star fans and turned them into a kind of paramilitary unit. These so-called fans committed atrocities in Croatia and Bosnia during the first half of the 1990s, operating under the control of the Serbian security services. After the wars in Bosnia and Croatia, the hooligans took part in rallies against Milosevic and contributed to his fall. But they did not confront the president because they had dreams of a European, democratic and liberal Serbia. They opposed him because he had lost the war. Soon after the fall of Milosevic in 2000 and a few days into his new into the new democratic Serbia, the country's most important football game, the Belgrade Derby between Red Star and Partizan, had to be interrupted to stop furious fighting between hooligans from both sides on the pitch of the Red Star Stadium. The ensuing decade bred two different sides to a generation that no longer remembered Tito's post-war Yugoslavia. 
One side was raised in 1990s wartime misery and was frustrated by the slow improvement of living conditions afterwards. The other was brought up by well-to-do parents close to the Milosevic regime. Many lived in the West and learnt foreign languages, but they brought back to their home country the worst aspects of Western lifestyle. Both sides are united by a hatred of Western, particularly American ways, and contempt for their regional neighbours, especially Albanians, Bosniaks and Croats. Elements from the secret services, nationalist political parties and even the ruling coalition thrive in this environment, but leaders of the most violent groups are often outright criminals involved in drug and weapon trafficking, as well as organised prostitution. These groups have achieved a high level of impunity. Serbian governments follow a cautious approach and the most popular football and basketball clubs are in their hands. On several occasions, Red Star fans have invaded their team's dressing room and hit the players. Players' cars were broken into and a torch was once rammed into a policeman's mouth. Partisan supporters in Belgrade killed a fan of the visiting French team Toulouse, that's Breeze, In 2008, hooligans of all stripes attacked and damaged the embassies of America, Germany and several other countries in Belgrade, while police looked on without intervening for several hours. The police and the judiciary have only begun a few investigations into these cases, which have led to even fewer trials and verdicts. Journalists in Serbia seldom dare write openly about hooliganism surrounding football or basketball, knowing that they cannot rely on state protection for themselves and their families. Exactly what the motives of those behind the most recent incidents in Belgrade and now in Genoa are is not clear. One school of thought is that the hooligans are controlled by secret service circles close to the ultra-nationalist camp intent on overturning the pro-European government, unquote. So a lot to think about, and I'm going to leave it there for part one. Hope you're finding this interesting. Don't be a hooligan. I will be back with part two in the coming days, definitely within the next week, probably what is it, almost Friday here, probably early next week. Stay tuned. Um, We'll get into the investigation into Brees and we're going to talk about a lot of different men involved in this, whether or not they were involved or not, and the opposing sides of the argument. Uh, Stay tuned. Visit the website. I'll put up Bruce's episode page probably next week. It's um or soon. It's unknownpassagepodcast.com. Become a patron. It links off the website. Uh, you can read about all the different tiers and what they involve on the Patreon. Join the community. Um, if you want to give to the PayPal but don't want to join the patron, uh, it is unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com. A reminder, because people keep doing it, uh, that I'm not taking case requests at the moment. Um, and I also don't reply to emails that literally are just a link to a case with no, hi, Felicity, my name is, I thought you'd find this interesting because um, I think it's rude and it's really bad luck etiquette. Um, and I get it a lot from people, you know, or people, you know, demanding the details of families who I've um, spoken to because they've got a tip, but they don't introduce themselves where they're from um, what they're kind of doing, how they came across this information. They just write, give me the details of, um, so I'm not yeah, replying to those anymore. Um, but if you do send through one, it's probably on my list or I'll add it to the list, but the likelihood of me getting to it in the next year 
is pretty slim. Um, I will be back next time. Stay tuned. Have a really good weekend. I'll talk to you soon.